Julie, I'm not sure if you were aware, but there's a uh, writers and like actors uh, strike going on. Are you aware of, of this that's yeah. going on across? The I country? have heard of this, and I'm anticipating a large lull coming up in my yeah. watching abilities. I feel like we're usually teased with all this fall television right about now, and I just don't feel like I'm getting as much. I mean, I feel like I see an ad for The Golden Bachelor every 30 seconds, but other than that, I don't feel like I'm getting a good intro into all the fall TV. But you know who's not on a strike? Me and you. Your doctor friends. Because <laughs> we, we don't have writers. It's also, you and me. Two questions. One, are you watching network television? Two, are you watching commercials on network television? Uh, it's a good question. No. <laughs> I'm watching Hulu, and Hulu owns uh, whatever is the Golden Bachelor's on, I think, to probably it. a certain extent. Got it. I don't even know what um, that is. It sounds like you made it up. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the Golden Bachelor, you want to go into that? It's about an old not. guy who... I they're doing do an old ba- They're doing an old Bachelor now. Oh, now, now I find that heartwarming. I'm, yeah. I'm into that. Okay. I think it's old bachelorettes, too. Uh, I don't think they have, like, 20-year-old women coming in for this 55-year-old man. Yeah, that would as be... As long as we wanted to tangent I don't, on this. I can't get behind. <laughs> anyway, going back to what I was saying, yes. we do our own writing. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a strike. And because mm-hmm. of that, we're getting creative. And your doctor friends wanted to surprise our listeners with a new concept that has been in the works for a while. Believe it or not, between episodes, we do actually talk about this show and come <laughs> up with new stuff. And so we are introducing a new format today. Julie, can you tell our listeners what we're doing today? Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, and it kind of takes a page from some of our favorite podcasts. I mean, at least, you know, I think some of the ones I listen to, there's two hosts and they kind of tell each other stories from, you know, or they go over things that are hot in the media right now. And so we thought, all right, our, our homework for each other was, Julie, you come up with two topics that are things that are um, in the news media outlets right now or that are working their way through people's inboxes or through their social media that are health related. And and Jeremy, you do the same thing and we will do our doctor research. So kind of look at them with the appraisal that two physicians would look through to say, okay, what's helpful, what's not so helpful? You know, try to find the receipts and look through them, go through that CVS long list of stuff. and um, And then digest that and spit it out for our listeners so that they can have a better understanding of appraising what's in the the media right now um and you know hopefully learn some stuff ourselves yeah historically this show has been formatted in a way where we have a topic and we'll go into it very deep you know 30 45 minutes or so on something that is um top you know topical in the sense of healthcare but not necessarily topical in the news and so talking with 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 Julie what we decided was why not actually answer the questions that people are having from the week that they're actually listening in yeah. terms of saying what was in the news and is it important? I just would love to hear what a doctor has to say about this. And so we're going to put that into audio for you. So yeah, we have four great stories for you today. We're going to go through them on a quicker basis. So you get four topics for the price of one today, the price of $0 that you're <laughs> listening in on. And in addition to that, you're going to get just your doctor friends with some banter and some good information and our insights. So I am really looking forward to this and we would love any feedback feedback on this because we're going to try to do it more often if you guys like it so yeah and if there's that, something yeah if there's something really topical that you care about you're like oh i read this really great article and i want your doctor friends to break it down for me or you know send us a message uh dm us send us our email at your doctor friends podcast at gmail uh call us up 
on on your dock line, whatever. We will listen to you, and we'll and uh, we're doing these hopefully weekly. We'll see. We're gonna sprinkle in maybe some of our old format with our one on one with our doctor friends experts as well. But um, this is a we're we're adaptable. We're malleable. We 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 give the people what they want, right, Jeremy? Yeah, and throw us a bone if you guys send us articles and things that you're interested in. We don't have to do as much research, so thanks. <laughs> yeah, do you have the book report for us? Thanks so much. Let's roll. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Jeremy, do you know your blood type? I do. I actually do it? know my blood type. I'm O, I'm o positive. I, uh, I did not know this for the 30 plus, 34 plus years of my life. I learned it when I had children and they told me my blood type, but I I, I went my almost my whole life without knowing, That's which I guess now outs the fact that I probably wasn't giving a lot of blood to the Red Cross now that I say that well, out loud. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's what we're talking about today. Me giving blood to the Red Cross? Well, I think after I tell you my story, you may feel inspired to do so. All right. Um, I think I'm, I'm either O pos or O negative. It's, a lot of people are, oh, you'll see. We'll talk about that. But yeah, uh, I didn't know it for a long time, too, until, um, well, we'll talk about it. So that's so funny you brought that up. So yeah, there is a critical blood shortage in the U.S. right now. Um, this was an email that came across uh, in my inbox um, from the Red Cross, actually, because I had donated with them, and it was a while back. So on September 11th, the American Red Cross announced a critical national blood shortage. So, and according to this Washington Post article that I, I read a lot of my data from, um, the organization, which is headquartered in D.C. and collects and distributes around 40% of the country's blood donations, said its blood supply has dropped nearly 25% since early August of 2023, which is a shortfall of about 30,000 units of blood and platelet donations. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why this happened, and I'm, I found them very curious and interesting. Um, the Red Cross said that the back-to-back months of climate disasters in part of the country have made it harder for people to get to donation centers and blood drives as weather events like flooding and hurricanes, including uh, Hurricane Adalia in the southeast United States, which actually left, they mentioned, at least 700 units of blood unused because of destruction. Oh, um, they put greater demands on the blood supply. So also coupled this with this was these sort of climate events made it harder for people to donate blood. And then an unusually busy August travel season has hampered donations. Can you think of people going on vacation? Yeah. Can you think of some other things that have changed after pandemic that may make blood donations less common? Are we testing for more things? Uh, that's a good one. That's not what came up in the data that I looked into, but it's post-pandemic behavioral shifts related to work and school have made it more difficult to collect blood. So more people, people are working from home. House. Yeah. For instance, like so office-based corporate blood drives have declined and then school staffing shortages have meant fewer blood donation programs at educational sites like in colleges and universities. Mm. So what we need to do is have Amazon start shipping kits that I can send back <laughs> exactly. because that's that's how everything should be done in this world. I, apparently that's capitalism for you. So the Red Cross, this nonprofit, needs to collect about 12,500 blood donations every day to meet the demands of around 2,500 hospitals and transfusion centers nationwide. So the last time that the Red Cross declared a national shortage was in January 2022 
which was the worst level crisis in a, in a decade. I mean, which kind of makes some sense. Um, the current shortage is not as severe, but um, there are hospitals at critical levels right now. Um, so Kate Fry, she is the chief executive of America's Blood Centers, which is not the Red Cross. It's kind of a, another organization that manages a lot of what it sounds like America's Blood Centers. She said all it would take is one major traumatic event and the blood supply would be depleted in many parts of the country. A single trauma patient can require 100 units of blood or more, which is daunting. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Um, so if I want, if I needed to go to the hospital, like my local hospital here, and I needed blood while I was there, who like does the Red Cross supply everybody with blood? Or is no. that like, uh, so there's multiple different places that do this. So if the Red Cross is short, are these other places also short? Or Yes, yes. Um, you're you're right. So the, the Red Cross is the one that is um, stating that their stores are at critical levels. And they supply about 40% of the nation's blood. Mm, okay. Um, so there are other groups too. I know there's Vitalant. I know there's a few other ones. But the Red Cross is one of the major ones. And in this Washington Post article, they do talk to other um, blood collection centers. And some of them... All of them said they were low. Uh, not all of them said they were critically low. It's a good question. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so before the pandemic, donations from like teenagers and college students accounted for about 25% of all the blood donated at the New York Blood Center. Um, this is coming from um, a, a different blood donation organization. Um, those donations largely through high school and university blood drives have dropped by half um, since the pandemic. So a quarter of them, at least in New York State, came from young people in high school and college. And at least mm-hmm. in New York State, since the pandemic, that has gone down by half. Um, also, according to the American Blood Centers and then the ADRP, which is like sort of the international division of the American Blood Centers. Um, and there's a really great uh, infographic that I'm going to, well, it's more, it's actually like a, a slide deck that I'm going to um, make sure I have a link to. It's called the U.S. Blood Donation Statistics and Public Messaging Guide. So it's super helpful document. Um, only about two to four percent of the country's population actually donates blood every year, and about sixty-two percent of Americans are eligible. So sixty-plus percent of people could donate blood, don't have a contraindication to doing so, but only about three percent of us do. So right now, the Red Cross is urging donors of all blood types to give blood, um, but there's an emergency need for type O blood and platelets. Um, and then while they're sort of varying criteria, who's eligible to donate blood, um, whole blood donors can typically donate. How, how many times a year do you think you could donate your whole blood, Jeremy? I would assume I could do it once a week. So maybe 52 times. You think you can donate packed red blood cells once a week? I think I would be allowed to. I don't know if I want to. (laughs) No, you have to let them replete. So you can do it up to six times a year. So you could do it every two months. You think about the life cycle of the blood cells about what? 90 days. That's what the A1C yeah, but I'm packing blood cells here, man. I got plenty to share. <laughs> well, maybe you can. Maybe Wolverine over here can. Um, but we, you know, the other thing, platelet donors. So you can donate platelets up to 24 times a year. So every two weeks. Mm. Well, around every two weeks. Is um, there an easy way to get a list of like what disqualifies somebody? And let me 
put a qualifier on that. I we literally were just talking about this with my wife and her friend who was in town, and she regularly would give blood and she isn't, and it was because she was being disqualified for something that seemed ridiculous. And I wish I could remember what it was at this point, but it was like she used to do it all the time and is being told she can't now. And the list was the thing that what was seemed ridiculous. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that's popped up in my life too. Like I think for a while, my husband and I tattoos. Was a, it was tattoos that they were like, "You're not allowed that was to it. do it." Yeah, it's not anymore. They th- I can they link to the that. Red Cross and it's not. I mean, I'm donating okay. and I have plenty of them. <laughs> okay. Actually, be- so because of this article, I'm a sucker. I've got a, I've got a bleeding heart, Jeremy. So I'm donating Power Red on Thursday, which is a cool... I've never heard of Power Red. I've always mm-hmm. done either whole blood. Actually, my big re- resurgence with donating blood products was um, right after me and my whole family got sick, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and we donated mm-hmm. convalescent plasma. We were the first ones... In Illinois to do so. Me and me and my brother-in-law, Jake. I have another question. So if I donate blood in the in Illinois, does that get distributed nationwide to where people need it? I like- believe so. I think if that I'd have to look up. Um, and I'm sure that information is pretty well findable on the Red Cross website. Actually, you know what? This U.S. Blood Donation Statistics and Public Messaging Guide, I think, will have that answer. But um, I think, in general, because that blood products have a shelf life you know you, you can only use them for certain amounts of time or else they go bad um you know our blood are the red blood cells lice and and release all these yucky chemicals and um and actually can be harmful for people if you give it to them after its expiration date i guess just like anything else <laughs> don't eat yogurt don't give people expired red blood cells so my thought process would be that it, it would probably be given locally but i also think i'm sure there's some degree of triage of like where people are um in need most that yeah. there are ways of diverting supply yeah like good when story, disasters think, happen and such you know i think it's a good reminder for people because I, I my in my head the way that i'm seeing this going is you have the person who's commuting to work there's a red blood you know red cross place that's like down the street from where their office was they'd go at lunchtime mm-hmm. they'd donate blood they'd go back it was part of their routine in life and now their routine's completely off they're at home working from home they don't go to the office the red cross place may not be down the street right. the office may not even exist anymore for that matter um or the blood so drive it, was being done through their work oh that's a good point that's too. a big right. one that's, yes, that, that was the last organized. time i did it was at rush oak park they were like hey we're doing a blood drive and i was like oh i got right. some time during a break in my day i'll go do that and um yeah it's different. So anybody listening who used to run blood drives, please start running them again. Anybody who knows <laughs> them who used to run them, please tell them to start running them again. And if you used to give blood, go out and give blood. And now that you've said this, I should probably sign up to give my give. Well, my especially if you know soon. that you're O, because only certain people can do this power red one. So you basically get, are able to give them two units of packed red blood cells and they give mm. you your platelets and your plasma back. So you platelets takes longer to what's do. A unit? Take... What's a unit? How much volume is that? I don't if, remember. That's do you a good know? Question. I don't know off the top Thanks. of my head. You always ask me questions that I didn't put in my book report. Yeah, but like we, go... we edit this shit. Julie, let's just Google it. Yeah, I'm going to make you Un- do it. You ask unit, the question, you can get the answer. A single unit of packed red blood cells is roughly 350 mLs. It yeah. contains about 250 milligrams of iron. So 350 mLs. So about a, a third of a liter in yeah. each unit. Okay. Well, what's nice about this power, yeah, power red, it takes a half an hour longer than donating whole blood. Because they put your plasma and your platelets back in. So you're giving twice as much packed red blood cells. But you have to be O or I think A or B negative. I'd have to look that up again. And I don't... And O as an O positive or O negative. Correct. Any type of O. Um, And then platelets take about three hours to do. 
Yeah. My and, whole family is O positive, so we're all uh, universal acceptors. That's pretty selfish, except for my son, who's O negative and gets to be the universal helper for people. Yeah. Um, so I just remember there's a there's like a kind of a metalish band called Typo Negative, and I think that's what I am. <laughs> a metalish band? Yeah. Typo Negative? I, but I think I'm Typo Neg, but I have to double yeah. check. But I'm pretty sure I'm O. I think a lot of, like 45% of people are O. Um but yeah, I'm 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 excited to to do that and I just thought it was a nice reminder and it's interesting to see why you know, epidemiologically and sort of societally why these things might be happening right now, but we need blood. It's vampire season. Yeah, that's good. All right. Anything else you want to add to that? No. I like that was my blood one. We'll, we'll be back after the break. <laughs> I've never said that before. I don't know if we actually have. We also may not have. We we also may not have a break, so we also may still be here. But that just felt fun to say. Um, Julie, has anybody ever approached you about ordering a full body MRI before? No, other than you sent me like a link to something I didn't read yet. So good. Do you do you know anything about full body MRIs? Like what? I mean, I'm sure you can guess that that's a MRI of your full body. But do you know anything more than beyond that? No, but it sounds like it's for very well resourced people. It's the type. it, It makes me think of the type of people that are going to be shot into space first. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to send you a link. I just texted you a link. Okay. So click on the link, and then I want you to describe what you see and read the read the the comment. Oh, goodness gracious. All right. So tell everybody what, you, what you're seeing right now. First of all, it was posted by Kim Kardashian, um, and she's sitting on, uh, and it's a picture of Kim Kardashian posing. She's wearing scrubs, um, sitting on an MRI machine. Also, then a picture of her doing duck face in um, the like a bathroom, like a nice looking, probably like the MRI machine's bathroom. <clears throat> Do you want me to read what Kim said? Yes, please. All right. Kim K says, I recently did this at Prenuvio scan and had to tell you all about this life saving machine. <laughs> the Prenuvo, sorry, Prenuvo, Prenuvo full body scan has the ability to detect cancer and diseases such as aneurysms in its earliest stages before symptoms arise. It was like getting an MRI for an hour with no radiation. I mean, is it like an MRI or is it is an MRI? It probably is an MRI or like one. It has really saved some of my friends' lives and I just wanted to share. Hashtag not an ad. Chris Appleton once said literally booked in for this next week. Paris Hilton says love at Prenuvo. Yeah, how many uh, views or fo- or likes? Oh, it has three point four million likes. Okay, okay, so I think that sets the stage pretty well where we're going here. So, because of these endorsements on social media, Pernuvo has become the most famous on the market of these full body MRIs. There are other companies, Ezra, Simon One, and Nico Health, all have them. These companies basically have developed a business model that revolves around an out-of-pocket full-body MRI scan to prevent illness and disease. So Pernuvo, um, this is data off their website, it costs $2,500, it takes about an hour, and they do offer little like partial packages where you can be like, I want to do just my head and my torso, so that's $1,800 and that's 45 minutes, or I just want to do my torso and that's $1,000 and takes 20 minutes. So you kind of have a package on like, what body part do you want to have MRI'd? Um, Pernuvo's website says that they screen for and diagnose more than 500 conditions, including most solid tumors at stage one. As you've already read about one uh, uh, famous person to post about it, uh, there's more people that have done this. Maria Menounos did an interview with People where she credited the scan for finding her stage two pancreatic cancer. Um, There's multiple layers to this, Julie. I really want to explore these with you, but I want to just start like 
ignore some of the social media stuff for a second. Yeah. And just start with the medical side of things. Just as a medical test and a full body MRI, what are your thoughts on this? Well, it makes me think of, and I think I know, I think you think I know where I'm going with this. Not leading you anywhere. The way that I explain MRIs to people that come in to talk to me, or if they say, like, I really want an MRI because I'm worried that my, this thing isn't, has this problem. Um, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast, like with Chuck Bush Joseph, when we talk about meniscus tears and stuff, that the MRI is like a home inspection. So, meaning the MRI is going to pick up and the radiologist is going to mention every little thing that they consider abnormal by the American College of Radiology. And then it's up to someone who is in clinical, has clinical responsibilities with that patient to help interpret those results. And that's where I think the problem is going to be with this type of testing, is that it requires resources and access that we already have trouble with in uh, the American healthcare system. And pivoting the other part of this, which I think you may touch on, so I won't go too far, is like, what is the hallmark of a good screening intervention? Why isn't the USPSTF already recommending this? Yeah, and that's the preventative task force who yeah. makes our recommendations on screening. Um, yeah, so I, I think that the question that I would get or how I would think about this, and even as my own self going through the story thinking, like, what's the downside? So mm. if I go to get this full body MRI, there's no radiation. They're going to advertise that like crazy. Yeah. It only takes an hour. I'm going to see my entire body. And what if I find stage two pancreatic cancer like this woman did, this famous yeah. woman did? I mean, that's did actually Wait, probably it was save Maria, Was it Maria Menounos or was it some friend of hers? No, Maria Menounos herself. Yeah, she. I see her on my gas station pumps and yeah. before movies. I see she's great. Yeah, so she had she found that on this scan, Oof. but she, to clarify, was also having symptoms that they could not figure out where they were coming from. She also had a history of cancer, in her. Yeah. She had brain cancer, so like mm-hmm. she had risk factors. It wasn't somebody who was just healthy, who had no issues going on, who walked in and said, "I just want to have a scan." So I, I think using your slash my home inspection analogy. I think the the thing here is if I have a home inspection done and I have a guy come in or a woman coming in, look at my house and be like, there's a crack in this foundation. And we know from decades of experience, this is one neither needs to be taken care of, or this one's going to be an issue or this one doesn't right. with MRIs. We find all these things and we don't have knowledge to know what's good and bad. Yeah. So you're basically going to end up with a scan. It's going to say, listen, the radiologist isn't going to tell you whether it's good or bad or that you should do something about it. They're just going to show you, say, there's Something's a little here. bit of, there's a cyst in this body part. And you're mm-hmm. like, what do I do about that? And then you're going to show mm-hmm. it to a doctor and the doctor's going to say, well, I don't know because we don't find that very often on people and because you weren't having any symptoms. So we don't look for it. I don't right. know really what to do, but I'm also not very comfortable with you keeping it there because it's right. there. So I guess maybe we should do some more testing. Maybe you need a biopsy, and that's not benign. You know, that can right. have complications. Maybe we should remove it. Now that can have a post-operative infection. Maybe we should leave it there, and you should sleep with the anxiety of it every single right. night um, for the next, you know, couple of years. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of layers to it. But ultimately, I think that the availability of this, for me, to the general public, is far beyond our knowledge base of what we're finding. Right. And so it's just going to lead to a lot of, like, I don't know what to do with that. And I, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm not here to like poo-poo 
having technology give us more information because I think we'll look back at this episode and be like, we were just cantankerous old coots that didn't like anything new back then. Like clearly technology has helped us in so many amazing ways. And that's where we are today in medicine. And that's wonderful. And I'm glad that we, we um, embrace those things, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that there, this is, this is something that um, is going to be difficult to, to work through because you there needs to be context and if there isn't any context then i just think it means that people that can afford this scan who want to worry will then have a bunch of new stuff to worry about (laughs) and or you know what's the the implication of all right well it says that your scan was clear but you had leukemia and it didn't catch that on you. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, right, if you had a clean scan, would you feel it. better yeah. then? Would you feel, could you sleep better at night? It's just, it's difficult. You know what it yeah. makes me think of? This is like a dumb, funny thing, and you can cut this out if you want to. But I just saw a TikTok that's hilarious that I might have sent to you. It's from the, um, I think it's like American High School Shorts or High School Shorts or something. It's so funny. It's this group of like younger comedians that I think have rented out an entire old defunct high school and just make shorts, like, videos out of it. But this one was about... <laughs> doing scoliosis testing during gym class <laughs> and they're like hey kids it's time for scoliosis testing and it's like it's like the gym teacher and then the school nurse is next yeah. next to them and it's like what's scoliosis like i'm not going to tell you what that is and it's like well what happens if you say that we have it it's like nothing i don't know you have to tell your doctor i'm not going to tell you anything more <laughs> so and it like cuts to like in the bathroom later the nurse is like yep you got it and the kid's like yeah. well what do i do she's like i don't know go away <laughs> they didn't put that in the manual exactly <laughs> It brought up a lot of weird old memories. But yeah, it's exactly that. If you implement a screening test that doesn't have a a clear set of guidelines of what you're supposed to do after it, then it's just information. Yeah, you just answered the question that you asked me a while back that I didn't answer. But a good screening (laughs) test is one that when you get an answer or when you do the screening test, you know what to do with it at the end of it. And you can actually make a difference. So well done on answering your own question after I babbled. I do want to throw a little bit of data on this. So there was a 2019 meta-analysis looking at 12 studies. So a meta-analysis takes a bunch of studies and puts them together to give us a more powerful result. It had over 5,000 people and they didn't have any symptoms of diseases like cancer, but it had undergone a whole body MRI. And among... um, The six studies that had complete data, the researchers found that 16% of people who were scanned ended up having false positives. So that's more than one in 10, but less than two in 10. So, you know, somewhere, somewhere around there. And then only one study observed false negatives, meaning they got the whole body scan. There was something actually going on and they didn't find it. So only one study found that. Um, It occurred in 2% of people in that one study. So still not zero, but Mm -hmm. uh, only one study found that. And then roughly 32% of people had an MRI that detected an abnormality that could potentially be clinically relevant. But it's not not clear whether those abnormalities would have led to disease or death. Right. Meaning that they found something. It could be clinically relevant. Somebody needs to interpret it for them. It could lead to problems, but it's really unclear to know if it actually changed their long-term outcome. So I don't know if you have any reactions to that, but at least there's a, a study semi yeah. on this. My reaction is, instead of doing this thing that's expensive and puts the onus, I guess, on the on the person who's purchasing it to, like, open Pandora's box, why don't we take all that, those resources, and just EKG all of our athletes? Yeah, that's good. I, I see what you did there. All right, I have I have like three kind of questions for you. Yes. The first is like if somebody walked through, if, if you walked in tomorrow and somebody offered you to do this for free, would you do it? Yes. If somebody uh, said you had to pay for it, would you do it? No. 
So the cost is what would prevent you to, from doing it. Yes. Why do you think you would do it if you, it was free? Because I can like, interpret you, it myself. Okay, because you have the knowledge base. Okay, so if you had a doctor friend... I'd make you, you do it, actually. Yeah, so if anybody <laughs> listening to this is friends with us and wants to do this, they would just want us to interpret it for them. Uh-huh. So you just need a good doctor friend if you're going to go do this. Um, my next question kind of bolds off that. So what about a friend texting you tomorrow and says, hey, I think this is really cool, and Kim Kardashian did it. I want to do it. What would you tell them? It's your money, but uh, it depends. It depends. I guess my question back to them would be like, what do you, what, what questions are you trying to answer for yourself? Yeah, I think that there's, I, I want to put out two scenarios with that friend. Um, there's probably a thousand scenarios for this um, sure. that could, be, people could be concerned about a lot of things. I want to put out the, probably the most common one, which is just somebody who's healthy and is like, wow, I just want to know. Like, so it's no concerns, just like, I just want to see what it would show. Um, what would you tell that friend? I would, I'm not going to give advice about whether or not they should do it. But I would probably tell them, like, I don't think I would. Yeah. Um, because... Even though you just said you would do it. I'd do it for free. Um, <laughs> uh, mainly because it... it That's a hard one. I think... I think I would just tell them that I probably wouldn't spend money on it because... Yeah. There's, there's I, just uh... too much... Too much and, and also, the other part of it is, um, if this thing takes off and a lot of people are doing it and there are better ways to interpret these results and that probably takes years and years and years to develop those algorithms fine but for now i don't think that i think that it's just a little bit too it's weird it's emotionally risky (laughs) i like that that's a good label um I have a sub comment to that, but I want to ask you the second friend. How about the friend who says like, I, you know, like three of my family members had cancer and I have no symptoms. And let's just say it's a cancer that shows up on an MRI. Let's say it was, um, what's a good one? Breast cancer or like uterine cancer. Let's say uterine cancer, um, or colon cancer. Any of those that would maybe show up on an MRI, but maybe have other, maybe have other tests. Um, and they had it when they were in their fifties and I'm 42. You know my answer to this. Then my answer what? is yes, do that. So get the MRI. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like where we've gone in, and I won't spend too much time on this because we're not having an episode about it, but about like low um, low radiation CT scans for people that are in like moderate risk for lung cancer and how much time that took to, for the USPSTF to make some recommendations on that. I mean, I feel like I still don't even know that and it just came up on me taking my boards. Yeah. So the, the, the questions for me there are, cause I agree with you to a certain extent. There's a part of me that says if I had a huge family history of cancer, there's a part of me that would want to do the scan. But the sure. real question I would have is like, how often do I do it? Because there's a chance that it would show up normal now, but then like, I probably need to do it again. Right. Yeah. And because there's no guidance on screening here, whereas like, I know how often I'm supposed to get my colonoscopy. I know yeah. how often I'm supposed to get my mammogram. I, you're kind of left in the dark and it obviously costs money. So I still think that there's a little bit of issues there on kind of like, when do you do it? But I agree with you that there's a part of me that would be like, yeah, I, I want to go get it looked at at least once to kind of be like, I want to know. The last thing I want to say is just like genetic testing to a certain extent, mm-hmm. this is kind of like opening Pandora's box and you mm-hmm. cannot close it again. So if you open it and you find some stuff and that stuff is not clinically relevant enough to get treated or would involve some major procedure and they're not even sure it would cause a problem, you will know about it and you cannot unsee it. We say that all the time when we're interpreting MRIs for people. It's like, you can't unsee what you've already seen. You can't be like, oh, now I didn't know that that was there and I want to go back to that point. So I just, that's that little thing for me. I'm like, 
we've talked about this with genetic testing too because there's a part of me that's like yeah i would love to get a big genetic test to know kind of like what i have but also i don't know if i want to because i don't know if i can modify i agree i think that there might be some degree of I mean, and I think if you polled 100 people, you're going to get you're going to get different responses. But my challenge to you is because you are a physician that takes care of professional athletes. Do you think that might that might color your idea behind? Because we are over screening those people, correct? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. If you're I looking do at think their that... general health, yes, you are. And so then you have an athlete that now you've gotten an MRI on their shoulder that says they have a labral tear. Now that's in that athlete's head for the rest of their life. And maybe that is a little worm that buries itself into a part of their brain that always thinks that they're a little bit broken uh, and or it colors the their ability to potentially have gainful employment or be you know like be traded for what you know i mean like i don't know i'm just wondering if if there's any part of you that would think like because we 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 have a population of people that we're screening in way more and in different ways than we are the general population if that affects our decision making processes at all Maybe. I, I just I think that know. obviously the concept of out-of-pocket health and wellness is rampant. That's why there's so many podcasts about well, it. Well, yeah, and it's because um, of a general distrust of the system, which you can't really blame people for. That's why we're here. Yeah, there's also a hope to like try to live forever, and there's social media and advertising and all the stuff that goes into that. But, you mean wellness? But, you mean the wellness industry? Yeah, So, but like this one's interesting to me because testing itself, imaging, I should say, image testing generally speaking, has always been ordered by a physician for a problem. This is the first time I can really think of people being like, I'm just going to go get myself a scan. And you're like, what do you mean you're going to go get yourself a scan? It's right. I'm just going to get a full body scan. Yeah. You can't be like, I'm going to go get a shoulder MRI tomorrow, or I want to get an yeah. x-ray of my knee. You can't just like go get that. You have to go get it under a clinician guidance. Do you think that there's some resentment because they're usurping you? No, I, I, I really don't. I personally don't. I do think that you may find that in the physician yeah. community. Sure. Me personally, I'm trying to think about how would I use this among friends and family, among sure. if somebody comes in and asks me about it. And when I read the article, I thought to myself, and I've even put this on, um, you know, telehealth, which is a social media where physicians can post. Um, and, and that's the only people who can post. I, I just wouldn't recommend them right now. I just think we need more information um about what what we're seeing and such but this may be something that i recommend in the future and there as you mentioned if somebody said i could do it for free and as a clinician there's a part of me that would maybe want to do it the same way we talk about like genetic testing and stuff yeah, i have one more I mean, question just out of, out of curiosity because but i also know how my brain works and i think i've gotten better at this personally over the years and then we can shut up with all this banter of like there was a time where i would say absolutely i want that scan and i want it every year and I, th and I think it's because I felt like, well, then I have more control over my destiny and over my health. And I think that I'm a little bit older now and a little bit more therapized to know that I don't really have that much control over shit. And so maybe there is some merit into just letting things go and doing the health promoting behaviors that we know have has data to back them up and to not go poking around in things. Yeah. Do the things that should that, that we know prevent disease. 
you know, and right. also pay attention to symptoms and report your symptoms and maybe see a doctor if you're concerned about it, because then you can right. have conversations and maybe end up with imaging and your insurance would cover it. So I have one more question um, mm-hmm. and I stayed away from it until the end, but I think it's interesting. I think the marketing of this is obviously controversial. Um, the company does say that they do not pay anyone to market the scan. So, you know, at the end, it said not a paid ad. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim was not paid to do that. They just offer free scans to influencers and celebrities. And then in quotes, it said in exchange for an honest review, if they feel like it. Um, it's obviously not the norm for medical testing, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly there's advertisements for drugs um, and right, things, but I don't feel like there's many direct-to-consumer, like, go get a scan for something. Sure. Do you have any issues with this form of marketing of this or any it reaction It doesn't matter that? if I have issues with it or not is my answer. It doesn't matter if, uh, because it's still going to keep happening and rolling forward. No, I don't think that that's – I think that that's still a form of payment. It, yeah. Just because you didn't pay somebody doesn't mean you gave them you gave them a valuable service for free. You paid them, and so yeah. there, there's always going to be um, a psychological tit for tat that 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 person is going to be more apt to feel like they owe you something if you gave them something for free. Which is why, like, <laughs> yeah, if you charge one dollar for for a product or service, people are going to see it as being more valuable than if it was for free. True. So I, I, I don't I don't think I, it's all. It's all capitalism and it's all crap, and uh, and I think that that that's just them playing the game, and I think that everybody does, and and um, it's yucky and and it sucks when it comes into people's health, but you can't say it's terribly, you know, you I don't know, I wouldn't say it's the opposite of ethical, I suppose, but yeah, muddy. I I I th- I didn't have a strong reaction to it. Companies like this have to make money and have people do their scans, otherwise they go out of business. business. I think using influencers and celebrities is maybe the hottest way to market anything these days so they're yeah. just doing what everybody else is doing of course. um the one thing i will say that stood out to me as we wrap up here on this topic is the thing you have to remember is the person who's reading kim kardashian telling you how it saved a bunch of her friends yes. or found a bunch of things is that the people that she's referencing including herself are incredibly resourced and i'm not just talking about money i'm talking about that if kim kardashian called up ucla medical center tomorrow and said listen i had a scan and i want every specialist in the whole place to look at it and tell me what to do about it she could have that mm-hmm. and if you go get the scan tomorrow and you don't have access to top specialists who know what they're looking at who can give you interpretations on things like this is important then this is not important, you're going to be left in the desert and not knowing really what to do and whether to trust people. And so just understand that like when a celebrity is saying this is the best thing that's ever happened, they probably have at least 10 to 12 to 15 people on the back end really making sure that that thing had value for them. It's not apples to apples. That's, that's all. That's how I summarize the marketing for me. Rad. That's heard chef. That was great. Okay. All right. Hit me. We'll right. be back after the break. I, I just want to keep saying. Just it. do it every time. It feels so good. <laughs> you just say it, and then and then and then advertisers come and pay us money, right? Yeah. This uh, next section brought to you by Pernuvo Scans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this format. All right. Um, totally pivoting in another direction here. Uh, Jeremy, have you ever given someone Narcan, like in the hospital or in the ED, where you were there when you had to reverse? Yeah. I don't know if I physically was the one that pushed it, but yes, I've seen it, and it is the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's insane. Um, so, yeah, so, it, you know, if you, anybody who's been reading the news, so in early September, Narcan, is the brand of Naloxone, became available over-the-counter for the first time. Um, it's been around for decades, but the nasal spray form of Narcan has been available and FDA-approved since 2015, so many first responders and police officers carry it to counteract opioid overdoses. 
Um, you know what made me think of this other than it was it's been in the news when I went on this week on Tuesday to get my flu and COVID vaccinations because I listened to Rob Citrenberg and I did what he told me and I went they to Walgreens. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't know he did not give me Narcan. Goodness gracious. That's how rumors get started, Jeremy. Sorry. Um, I was in line to check in for my at Walgreens for my uh, vaccines, and I saw the uh, and I'll probably post a picture of it on social media. I saw um, the the display for the Narcan, and it was completely sold out, which was also was 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 fantastic, but also sad. But fantastic, but sad. But like, yeah, oh, but also like, then get more, you know. But it was hopefully it was stocked in the first place. It wasn't just like <laughs> it wasn't just a bunch of cardboard. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, so the change um, that the Food and Drug Administration approved in March for it to be available over the counter is part of a growing acceptance of a strategy known as harm reduction. Um, So under that approach, policymakers focus first on limiting the dangers of drugs, not necessarily forcing users to abstain. I don't know. I don't know if you if you have thoughts or um, anecdotes or reactions to harm reduction techniques i think they're no amazing. i think this is this is fantastic i don't think it should be the finish i don't think it's the finish of line course. but i think right. it's fantastic i think um destigmatizing narcan um as yeah. a drug we've talked about before is fantastic the drug basically has no side effects like you and i could do it on the show right now and we would have and no you'd effect be fine. You would just it, walk it wouldn't do anything nothing. to us because it just get it just it inhibits opioids so if you have opioids in your system it's going to reverse that effect but if you have no opioids in your system it does nothing it just so does nothing. like if you're worried and somebody's passed out or they're looking weird and you're like i don't know if this person had opioids or not and you give it to them and they didn't you didn't do anything wrong and right. if they did you, you may have saved a life so i think that that's fantastic Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, my question to you, uh, standing in line there, did you notice how much it cost by chance? We will get into this, but yeah, it was forty forty four ninety nine. Yeah. So that's what I mean by it's like not the finish line, right? Because like people shouldn't really have to pay forty five dollars from this. Like it, mentally in my head, and I may be jumping you a little bit, is like this. This kind of should be like the AED, right? Yes. Like you know how we have AEDs everywhere; those are expensive as hell. I mean, yep. those are thousands of dollars, but nobody's being asked to buy an AED. Uh, I mean, corporations and things are, but no individuals being asked to like carry around an AED because they have a heart problem. They're they're being placed everywhere. So like Narcan should just be sitting everywhere. It should just yeah. be in cases. It should be in jump bags. It should be on airplanes. Right. It should be. It should just be like. Like, available. I know. I agree. Yeah, because more than 100,000 people in the U.S. die of overdoses each year. It's mostly from the synthetic opioid fentanyl. So drug overdoses is higher than the number of people who die each year from homicides and suicides combined. So there was like the top four of causes of accidental or injury deaths. Number one, drug overdoses, 107,000 people. Number two, suicides at 48,000. Number three, traffic accidents at 45,000. And number four, homicides at 26,000. So, yikes. The policy policy shift towards harm reduction seems to be producing results. Overdose deaths have plateaued over the last two years. After more than doubling from 2014 to 2021, Narcan has played a role even when it required a prescription, um, and policymakers hope that making it more accessible, like you said, will reduce deaths further. So the CMO of Walgreens, his name is Dr. Kevin Ban, and he was actually the former CEO of Athena Health, Jeremy, (laughs) which we are accustomed to. He said everyone should be thinking about putting this into their first aid kit. Which is funny because this actually came up with some of the organizations that I'm a team physician for, and they were like, "Can we do this?" And I was like, "Please do." And this was actually before it was it was OTC. Yeah, the the athletic trainers are putting it in their kits uh, just because why not? Um, And 
clearly, the ideal solution is to get drug users into addiction treatment so that they can stop using harmful drugs. But that is not possible if they are dead. So Narcan, like other forms of harm reduction, can keep people alive until they're ready to get help. Yeah. I feel like we've come far enough in this conversation. It, it, it's like sometimes um, the way we respond to things doesn't match where we are in society. I mean, that probably mm-hmm. happens a lot. But like we've come far enough in this drug addiction world in which we yeah. completely understand that like addiction is a disease and that vast majority of people who are addicted to drugs don't want to be and that right. it's not necessarily them making bad behavioral decisions they right. are they have a disease right and so if we sit there and we say well if we give narcan we're encouraging people to take drugs i think we're again not meeting people where society is here right like we need to be saving lives and people are going to be using drugs and we need to do everything in our power to help that problem as you've just mentioned we need to be fighting the fentanyl and illegal fentanyl synthetic fentanyl all that the way that you would be but at the same time if somebody's going to do something that could lead to them dying and we have something that would save their life that is easy to use has no side effects has no complications and can be administered by an eight-year-old right like it should be available and it should be everywhere and it does not mean, I mean, the number one question I got was like, should we put this in the kit? Do you think it kind of like has a little bit of like, well, we don't have any opioid users and I don't want people thinking that we're assuming that people are on it or anything like that. And I said, who cares? My response to that was, you never know who's taking it. Right. And you don't want to be there with, with find out somebody was taking medication from a surgery that you didn't even know they had and they overdose and you're like, I wish we'd had it in the kit. Absolutely. Or they, or they, I don't know, maybe they're a college kid who got some whatever white drug off the street that was laced with fentanyl they didn't think they were going to be taking. Maybe they're, you know, like, you don't know. I mean, just. That's a great point. That should be, this should be all over college campuses. Stuff happens, you just, man. You just yeah, saying that out loud, like, this should be everywhere. It's like, now that I think about it, like, I wish I probably should have, like, one in my car. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. about getting one, but they were sold out when I went. But next well, time I'll do like it. Well, it's also like dollars right? Well, like, so likely cheaper alternatives will come out since it's now FDA approved. So just for every Zyrtec, there's a cetirazine. So there's probably going to be generic forms of naloxone because why not? Why, yeah, there's probably going to be Walgreens brand naloxone yeah. very soon. Is, is it covered by insurance if somebody prescribes it, Narcan? Do you know? That's a good question. I'm not sure. The, the reason I asked the question, I remember when, when, when I was in residency, which was now 10 plus years ago... Um, when we ever we, we prescribed a narcotic, we prescribed Narcan with it. It was like a, no matter what, if you prescribed Norco or hydrocodone and the patient was going to go pick it up and let's just say you prescribed enough for like 10 days even just mm-hmm. to like help with some acute thing. They fractured a bone. Yeah. We prescribed Narcan and I don't know if everybody picked it up, but it was like you should, you just simultaneously always no, pick them up. We didn't do that. Uh, That's pretty yeah, bad. We, we did. We did it for everybody because it wasn't like we were trying to decide who would be high risk for overdosing and who wasn't it was like this medication can cause this problem it can cause a side effect it's like knowing that you can have a side effect from something and being told this is the counter to that side effect like everybody would if you gave a cortisone injection to somebody's knee and said listen if you have this side effect here's a drug that could make it feel better so maybe like that's great i'm glad i have that on hand right like that was kind of the concept especially because the the potential side effect of an opioid overdose is death as sure. opposed to, like, a side effect of Benadryl is drowsiness. Like, who cares? You know, like, yep. not who cares, but, like, okay, you'll it'll wear off over time. Yeah, so I wanted to give some quick hits about naloxone just to, you know, give a little educational piece. This comes from the NIH, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. I'm going to link this in the show notes, too. This is a really great collection of slides, again, about 
things to know about naloxone and uh, and opioid overdoses and how you this makes me think of what this is like i'm putting on my sarah lorenzini hat my rapid response rn and i'm trying to educate of like what do you do or like when you know if you were worried about somebody say you have it you have it in your car and you're you come across somebody or you're at an event or something you're like oh no like i think this person could benefit from it so i wanted to give just like a quick rundown of quick hits about naloxone So you're absolutely right. Naloxone is a safe medicine. It only reverses overdoses in people with opioids in their systems. So just saying that out out loud, you said it before. There are two FDA-approved formulations of Naloxone, injectable and prepackaged nasal spray. So before that, it was more of an injection. Now you don't have to deal with the injection part anymore. So yeah, the the nasal spray is an FDA-approved pre-filled needle-free device that requires no assembly, and it's sprayed into one nostril while the person lays on their back. So it can be easier for loved ones and bystanders without any formal training to use. So SAMHSA, which Gail Bosch was telling us about SAMHSA as a really good um, uh, resource, has a great toolkit for opioid overdose. It has a step-by-step approach to the overdosing person. So first you're assessing them. You're seeing if this person is arousable. Are they, you know, are they, there's a, there's a really good, hold on, let me go down to it. Um, So what are some signs of an opioid overdose? So unconsciousness, very small pupils, um, slow or very shallow breathing. They could be vomiting. They could be, they're likely unable to speak. They have a very faint heartbeat or pulses. Their arms and legs are limp. They have pale skin and they have purple lips or fingernails, which would be, that's the, like looking at the assessment part of it. Um, so then, then you're going to stimulate them. So you're going to call their name and do the sternal rub. So they said like, don't slap people. Don't throw them in a, in a shower because if they're unconscious, they could be harmed or drown, you know. Um, so the sternal rub where you rub your knuckles up against their sternum, because that really has very low risk of actually harming them in any way, but it is very painful and annoying. Um, uh, and then if they do not um, respond to you, if especially assess their breathing. So if they're not breathing, you should give rescue breaths and kind of go through the whole CPR. Um, call 911 immediately and then uh, administer naloxone. So you should repeat it. In two to three minutes. So if you put it in their nostril and spray it, and in two to three minutes they're not aroused, they don't wake up, they don't start breathing normally, um, then you should do it again in the other nostril um, in two to three minutes. Um, Because some opioids are very, very powerful, like fentanyl, that maybe one dose of naloxone would not be enough to reverse that overdose. Um, So, but then caution, as the person awakens, they may be agitated or combative. Is is that what you've seen when you've seen opioid reversal? Yeah, this is, uh, we said this at the beginning, but this is the one that actually looks like on TV when they show it. But the person kind of like usually like gasps and like sits up really quickly and goes, but at the same time, like you just put them into opioid withdrawal. So like they're going to feel pain and terrible. Right. Yeah. But it's unpleasant, but not life-threatening is important to to mention. So then put them in a recovery... Yeah, right. Put them in a recovery position, so like laying on their side if they'll let you, and then await for help or transport them to the ED. Um, Because then in the ED, they can be treated for their withdrawal symptoms. So like Mm -hmm. they can be meeting feet. And then the problem is, is that naloxone only works in the body for 30 to 90 minutes. So the um, it's possible for a person to still experience the effects of an overdose after the naloxone wears off or need multiple doses if like fentanyl or a very potent um, opioid is present in their system. Um, in some states, I didn't know this, friends and family members can be trained on how to give naloxone. So you can check your local state, you know, if they have free training on that. So police officers, emergency medical technicians, and first responders are trained to how to, how to give this. But really, it's just on the packaging. You just squirt into their nose. 
Um, so yeah, people that are given naloxone should be observed constantly until the emergency care arrives. They should be monitored for at least another two hours after the last dose of naloxone to make sure that their breathing doesn't slow again or stop. Um, and so it's really important to call 911 so that this person can be uh, assessed and monitored after you've administered this. It's kind of like when you give an EpiPen too. you know, like you give somebody an EpiPen if they're having an allergic reaction, but over time that, that, uh, the effect of the medication could wear off and they could have simply, you know, um, negative outcomes. But yeah, that was my whole kind of like one, two, threes about naloxone. Yeah, I love that you brought up EpiPens as we wrap up this topic, because in a perfect world in my head, we, every place that had an AED right now would also have an EpiPen and Narcan. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's three things that save a life immediately that tend to be emergencies that need to be done sometimes before EMS can show up and um, don't have consequences. Like giving epinephrine, as you know, Dr. Stukas has told us before, is not going to cause harm to somebody. Like if you give it and it's not the thing that they needed, they'll be fine. But if it is, you saved a life. Same thing with yeah. Narcan. So Agreed. again, I think having those things available, if we can figure out a way to to kind of work with the government to figure out federal and state funding to have that stuff everywhere. Um, and certainly if you are listening and you are uh, in power at a high school or places where there are people um, and have AEDs and you can have these things available, I think you, you can make a big difference. So great story. I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think the way that we we're getting like um, a new wave of like new COVID tests that can be shipped to your house. I think it, it, it could be helpful if you were a family member of somebody who has been experiencing substance use disorder or, you know, if you just wanted it, that it'd be nice to be able to just like click on a box on a website and they just send it to your house. Yep, and maybe that's something in sure. the future that could happen. And it's Harm not $45. Dollars. Yeah. And then it's no dollars. Yeah. All right. Last one. You got yeah. enough uh you got you got enough stamina left for this one? Yes. I got my iced coffee. I'm down to this much. This next section brought to you by Narcan. <laughs> $45 at your local Walgreens. Um <laughs> So this one's a really quick one, um, but I think it's important. It's one that we've actually already covered on the show with our pharmacist friend, Greg Castelli, and one that mm. we posted actually on our Instagram um, with a with, that uh, Julie Bruni put on there, which is great. It's actually stretching back two weeks, but since it's our first go with this, I'm bending the rules, and I think it's important to point out because we're going into cold and flu season. Yes. Phenylephrine, which is everybody's favorite non-effective friend in the cold and sinus aisle, is one of the most common active ingredients in cold and sinus medicines. And according to the FDA or an FDA panel, it now belongs in the inactive ingredient section rather than the active ingredient section. Mm -hmm. So um, personally, I don't think this is a huge shock. I think many of us, and if you listen to our episode with Greg Costelli, mm -hmm. have always been taught that phenylephrine doesn't work. Um it's packaged in things like Sudafed sinus congestion, Tylenol cold and flu, NyQuil severe cold and flu, Theraflu, Mucinex sinus max, all these other ones that you're used to seeing. And you look on the back and there's four different drugs. Phenylephrine is most likely in there with the exception of the ones you have to go to the pharmacist and ask for the ones that are behind them because those have a different drug called pseudoephedrine. And of course, they have to kind of look like each other to, to confuse everybody. <laughs> but... The FDA panel, which is not the FDA, but it's basically a panel of experts who get together um, and make recommendations, unanimously voted that it's ineffective. And therefore, you know, the FDA frequently does listen to the panels. We may see this removed from shelves um, if, if they do say that this is ineffective and should, shouldn't be on shelves. So uh, one clarification before I get your insight on this, Julie, nasal sprays that contain phenylephrine are still considered effective. So this yeah. is only oral phenylephrine. Mm -hmm. um, they also use phenylephrine 
epinephrine for like things like surgery and dilating eyes and stuff. So if you hear the medicine in those formats, it does still work for those things. It's just the pill form over the counter. Um, I don't think there's a ton of depth here, but any thoughts you want to add? Well, my knee jerk, and I think this might have been brought up in our episode with Greg from last year. Um, was there a shift to phenylephrine because people wanted a decongestant but didn't feel like going over the counter? And it was because pseudoephedrine was controlled because people make meth out of it? It's a good question because um, pseudoephedrine was previously not over or not behind the pharmacist. You could mm-hmm. purchase that and then it got regulated due to methamphetamine um, production. Um, and I do think at that point you saw a big rise in phenylephrine because yeah. there was a, a barrier to people buying the medicine and they probably saw a dip in, in people purchasing it's, it. So I, sales. Okay. But it did exist before that. I just I don't know off the top of my head how common that was when you could get both of them. But if they were both in the same location, that's even more confusing because, again, you would see both and then you're, you're like, which like, one what is, is it? this? Yeah. And they look very similar, like the actual words look similar. My second question is, um, does it do anything? I mean, it, so phenylephrine, it makes me think of there is some sort of like stimulant proponent, like components to it. Meaning like, okay, it's a bad decongestant. So like clearly this panel, the FDA panel said like it doesn't it doesn't give you decongestant if you're taking it as an oral pill, but if you're doing it as a nasal spray or something, then that could work well. But like, does it do shit or does it give you a bunch of side effects? I'm assuming that something that is supposed to be a decongestant may have stimulant side effects. So is it really just a side effect pill now? <laughs> Well, I mean, so it's an alpha-1 agonist, right? So it's going to – it affects vasculature. So the thought process would be is that it would would vasoconstrict. So if it vasoconstricts Mm -hmm. and the vessels get smaller, you wouldn't have as much congestion because then you don't have as much blood flow, which means you don't have as much goopy stuff. So, but if it's not doing the decongestant part of it, all you're doing is getting vasoconstriction other places and probably affecting your blood pressure. So it's the same thing that pseudoephedrine does. Right, is it just like a high blood pressure pill? Yes, more, well, (laughs) causing high blood pressure, yes. Exactly, yes. It is a pro-hypertensive I I think the take-home... What 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 you're saying, and I think is important to clarify here, is phenylephrine still does something. It's just right. what they're saying here is is that the thing that it has been approved for. So FDA approves things, right? It says it's FDA approved to treat X. In so in this case, yeah. the FDA has approved phenylephrine to treat congestion, and so therefore mm-hmm. it has also been approved to treat congestion over the counter. So it's been deemed safe enough for somebody to go purchase for themselves. And so what the FDA panel has now said is that re-examining the studies and looking at it now, we believe that phenylephrine actually is not effective at congestion and therefore should not be FDA approved to do that. And so, again, you may be taking something that may only be causing side effects or causing something else. And maybe they'll find another use for phenylephrine. Again, it does do things like the dilation of the pupil and Mm -hmm. and things. But in this case, don't get it in your cold and sinus stuff. So, um, yeah, anything to add to that? No, I think that's very helpful. Very good con- context. I didn't want to spend a ton of time on it, but there's a couple, one other point I wanted to make. Um, if they do decide to pull these, meaning that if what will happen is the FDA, if they approve this or decide to move forward with this, they will say phenylephrine is not FDA approved for this. And therefore, everybody who makes these drugs will actually have to pull their stuff off the shelves. It won't be allowed to like just stay there and sell. Yeah. And so because of that, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be time consuming. And so you have all these brands that are going to be like, we have that. I mean, they'll have to reformulate, right? Yeah. They'll have to find a new formula that has something else. As with anything in business and with corporations in our government, I think there's going to be a big delay between this announcement and when that actually happens because of things like lobbying and such like that. Like this yeah. is going to be time consuming. So I do think that we're going to hear this, be like, oh, it's being pulled off the shelves. And then like it could take years. 
I, I don't know how long, but it could take a while before they're pulled off the shelf. So the take-home message for you listening is you still will probably have to actively not buy the product that says phenylephrine in it. So for now, the effective congest- decongestant, as Greg told us in his episode, is pseudoephedrine. And often, you know, pseudoephed got its name for that, right? Mm-hmm. But there are other brands that have pseudoephedrine in it, or pseudoephedrine can also just be generic. And that's the one behind the pharmacist counter. So that's the easiest way to determine whether you're getting the good decongestant is you should have to go to the pharmacist. Yeah. They should have to pull it off a shelf and give it to you. You probably have to show your ID because they want to make sure you're not buying too much. They track it to make mm-hmm. sure you're not making um, methamphetamines. The other thing is also you can consider nasal sprays like oxymetolazine, which is um, Afrin. Um, can be effective for a stuffy nose. So you have some other options. Um, Or go listen to that episode with Greg about cold medicine because this is the time of year where this is coming out. The stuffy noses are just around the corner. This is cold and flu season, so it's a great episode. Yeah. I don't have anything to add. Four great stories. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you learn anything? More to come. I mean, you know, more power to our members of SAG-AFTRA and I hope that they get what they are. And if you and if you want co- hot content like this, keep listening to us. Or go watch an A24 movie because they actually um, acquiesce to all of SAG-AFTRA's um, uh, uh, points. And that's why they're still making really great movies, and including one that just won Best Picture last year. So A24, yeah. do you want to sponsor us? Yes, please. <laughs> um, all right. I think if you're looking for contextual, evidence-based health information, maybe don't listen to Kim K. Maybe listen to Jeremy A. and Julie B. Your doctor friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.